Hey, this is Web Free Talks. The rule of this podcast is simple. We only talk with people who have hands-on web-free building experience. So if you are a hacker, entrepreneur, or investor, you can get inspired by their stories, lessons, and fuck-ups. My name is Mac, and I'm hosting this pod. If you want to stay in touch, go to twitter.com slash webfreetalks, click the link in the pinned tweet, and join our Discord community. Let's go. Today's guest is Dan Romero, co-founder of one of my favorite web free projects. And the project is named Farcaster. And if you make a quick look at it, it's you might think, okay, it's a decentralized Twitter, but it's much, much more than that. And I'm sure that in the next few months, it will be one of the most talked about projects in the whole space. So I'm happy to have you then here today. Thanks for having me. So like before we get to Forecaster, could you tell a little bit about your backstory? Because you've been in crypto for a long time. You were employee number 20 at Coinbase. So could you share a few words about this time? I moved to Silicon Valley in 2013. And then I promptly dismissed Bitcoin as a Ponzi scheme and magic internet money. The backstory there is I went to college with one of the co-founders of Coinbase, Fred Ursum. And when I was moving out to San Francisco, he pitched me on joining as one of the earliest employees at Coinbase. I think they had maybe just hired Olaf, who now runs Polychain Capital. But they had a huge customer support backlog, and they were just looking for people to get their hands dirty and, and help them with the massive amount of growth that they had happening at the time. And I hadn't read the Bitcoin white paper, and I just completely dismissed it. Like, magic internet money, why, why do I want to work on that? I ended up joining a SaaS company, and finally being out in San Francisco, what I found was anytime I met a smart person who, who seemed to have really interesting perspectives on technology— they also had a perspective on Bitcoin and generally found it pretty intellectually interesting. And I think as a result of that, I, I finally got around to reading the white paper. And after, the, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple, I think it's eight or 10 pages. I think the language is ten, typically pretty clear relative to, if you think about most cryptocurrency white papers today, they tend to be very math-oriented and technical, whereas I think the Bitcoin white paper is incredibly cogent and much more approachable than most people think. I think it's worth everyone's time to just read it, even if you don't want to work in crypto, just to understand what kicked this whole industry and, and trend off. So I read that, and then it becomes this mind virus where I can't stop thinking about Bitcoin. And the thing that I was most excited about is Bitcoin as a kind of new computing primitive. So when I read it, it is 2013, 2014, mobile was really hitting its stride. And... I think the thing that drew me to Silicon Valley originally was I wanted to build consumer products for people in a way that you could walk down the street in New York and Boston and London, and you could potentially see someone using a product that you worked on. That was exciting to me. And I think Silicon Valley traditionally has been the best place to do that. And what I saw in Bitcoin was, oh, this is how the next set of apps after mobile are going to be built. And so made the switch over to Coinbase. Ended up staying at Coinbase for almost five years. The thing I was wrong on, one, people aren't building those consumer apps on Bitcoin. And there are a variety of reasons. I think Bitcoin has opted for a particular strategy around decentralization, which I actually think makes sense for Bitcoin, but makes it pretty difficult to build consumer applications on top of them. And then I think that the second thing, and, and my time at Coinbase is, it's still really early for cryptocurrency. And so I think we're in this kind of deployment phase where for the first, my first five years in crypto, the on-ramp 
and just getting people from going to fiat to crypto was the 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 challenging thing. And I think we're probably at the order of magnitude now of like people who've you know bought their first cryptocurrency or have a cryptocurrency wallet where it makes sense to start working on some of those consumer applications. And now that it's not just a Bitcoin only world, I, I think that there are other blockchains and other technologies that you can actually use to go do that. And so that kind of five years later is is why I kind of left Coinbase and, and now working on what I'm working on. You started Farcaster in 2020, as far as I remember, with Varun Srinivasan, who also worked at Coinbase. So what was Farcaster two years ago and what is it now? Like how this idea evolved? When I reconnected with Varun in 2020, we had worked together at Coinbase and we went through a whole bunch of ideas. Varun had been a little bit more interested in DeFi stuff. And I think for me, I had an interest in kind of some, of, again, these consumer applications, a whole variety of them, some of them non-crypto. And as we kind of went through the various ideas, just kind of brainstorming, like, how would you approach this? I think one question that we found particularly interesting and, and spent a couple weeks on was the question of why did RSS lose to Twitter? And then the kind of flip side of that is how could you make RSS competitive with Twitter in 2022? And for those on the, the podcast who don't know what RSS is, it's real simple syndication. It's a protocol. It's permissionless. It is actually how you're probably getting this podcast today to your podcast player. It, it's kind of this in the background, pushing information out. But it, it's really kind of stagnated since around 2010. And in that era, I think a lot of what we have now with centralized social media kind of outcompeted the ecosystem of independent clients and stuff built on top of RSS for a variety of reasons. So one, discovery, I think, is, is vastly superior for kind of some of these centralized social networks, I think, particularly Twitter. I think the usability and kind of not having to kind of configure multiple different services to all work together. Twitter, in some ways, is just kind of this nice vertically integrated experience where you sign up with an email or phone number, you can start following people, you have an app, all from the same company. And I think that plus Google also had a product called Google Reader, which was one of the largest in the space. And they actually just killed it overnight because it wasn't you know making them enough money or worth their time. And so in, in exploring that idea, we did this kind of big, long brainstorm and, and thought through a bunch of different things from first principles. We said, why don't we start working on a prototype? And we were calling it RSS Plus, the idea being, you know, make something that's a little bit better than the existing thing that can be potentially competitive with Twitter. And two years later, with a bunch of iteration, hiring some people, having users in a beta, we now have something called Farcaster, which spiritually is, is related, but has evolved quite a bit since. You know, I'm obviously a very avid Farcaster user, but for people who have never tried it, like, what is it like? How does this user experience look like? Like I opened the app and what do I see? I think if I was just to pitch someone in an elevator, it would be Farcaster is like Twitter, but if you're really into crypto, that's the, the super simple pitch in terms of like what you would actually be using every day if I sent you the app. Fine. If, if you're interested in crypto, maybe that's more interesting to you. But I think when you peel it back a little bit more of how it works, which I think it's worth pointing out, most people don't care how something works. They just care about how to use it or how they experience it. And I think that's completely reasonable and fine. But in terms of what we're actually trying to do, Farcaster is what we call a sufficiently decentralized social network. We can get into that in a bit. But it's a social network that isn't controlled by any one company or individual. And it offers two guarantees to users and developers. So for users, you have a direct relationship with your audience. And the analogy I always use 
If you build an audience on Twitter or YouTube versus building an audience on an email newsletter, if Twitter or YouTube decide, for whatever reason, you can't be on their platform anymore, you lose their audience. There's no chance to get to export your followers and, and bring it to something else. There is no recourse. You can't sue them for it. it, it that's the terms of service, right? Centralized platform. Contrast that to email, where if you build an email newsletter and you're using MailChimp or Substack and you decide to switch platforms or one of them doesn't want to work with you, you can export your entire mailing list, move it over, and it works seamlessly. Like your newsletter subscribers don't even know that you're using a new newsletter service unless they're they're technical or, or kind of looking at the details. And so what Farcaster is promising is if you build a following, so you have 10,000 or 100,000 followers on Farcaster, no individual client or platform can take that audience away from you. So you're free to kind of move between different pieces of software built on top of on the social network. The developer guarantee is somewhat related, and it's that developers always have access to the underlying data and APIs of the, the social network. And the example I'd give you here, again, is, is Twitter-related. Twitter's early days, all of the mobile clients and were third-party. So it was independent developers playing around. There's a lot of actual interesting innovation. Pull the refresh came out of an early Twitter client. And at some point, Twitter decided to change their corporate strategy. They have every right to do that. And overnight, all of these clients kind of lost the ability to build meaningful independent businesses on top of Twitter. So it kind of went from this like very API, open API friendly company to, hey, we're, we're going to focus on our first party client because it's potentially offering a better user experience for people and we can monetize better on ads. I don't think you can you can fault them for that decision, like, but it is pretty jarring for people who had spent hours and you know, like you know, years building these clients to have that change overnight. With Farcaster, if you go and build anything, whether it's a, a kind of client, application, a new service, new type of social network, the access to the API and, and data, that's guaranteed. But more importantly, any users you get, they belong to you. So there's no kind of third-party company that can come in and say, actually, you know what, we're getting rid of sign-in with Farcaster. Now these users don't belong to you anymore. We're, we're you know, sign-in with Facebook, that kind of happened as well with Zenga. And so those two premises are actually the core foundation of, of what we hope that as Farcaster scales, it can really earn the right of being able to call it a protocol, right? And what I think of as a protocol is you have a variety of independent clients, applications, businesses that are thriving, and it's not dominated by any one company uh, or service. And I think that is better for consumers because it forces the different you know, applications and clients to compete on user experience. And it's much harder to do rent extraction, if not impossible. And I'll give you one last analogy because this is what I grew up in with crypto. Crypto exchanges. Crypto exchanges are built on top of these permissionless cryptocurrency blockchains, Bitcoin, Ethereum. And the core service that they're offering, the conversion of fiat to cryptocurrency, it requires work and now it's regulated. So you have to have enough money and resources to do it. But if, if you just look at the history of crypto exchanges, there have been a bunch that have come and gone. And you know, Coinbase has been there through most of it. But you know, Coinbase has had new competitors happen even after Coinbase has been at scale. Contrast that to most of the other stuff in Web2, where once you kind of get these proprietary network effects, you know, the, the classic example here is the Airbnb fees, right? Everyone complains about how, like, they list, you know, uh, like $500 a night, but it's actually $1,000 a night if you take everything in it. Well, there's no way to do a competing client on, on Airbnb because Airbnb has worked hard to, to build that proprietary liquidity for their marketplace. Mm -hmm. But it's built in a Web2 way where that's it's not a protocol. Whereas you can imagine at some point in the future, if someone is clever enough to figure it out, if 
rental stock for housing was more of a protocol, you'd have a bunch of competing clients trying to offer the best user experience, right? And so that is the vision of where we want to take Farcaster. But like I said, where it is today is it feels very much like Twitter. You open it up and it's a bunch of people talking about cryptocurrency. And so happy to talk about how I think about going from where we are today to where we want to head to. But that's basically Farcaster. Yeah, I think then that you're very humble when it comes to this short definition that it's just like a Twitter for people in crypto because, yeah, I've checked many web-free social products before. There's been this, you know, like like very old history like Steamy, then there was like BitCloud, all these crazy innovations happening there. Now there's Lens, but Forecaster is really special because you can really feel that you focus on user experience. And I think your onboarding process is very, very interesting. So if you could tell like in a few words, how does it look like? So I created an account and what happens next? Because I think it's really, really worth discussing. Our onboarding is interesting in that it it violates some conventions from Web2. So kind of the make your sign up as easy as possible. That's how you, you get to make a product great. And it violates some conventions from Web3, which I can talk about in a second. So from a Web2 standpoint, it was interesting. When we first launched the beta last year, we had an insanely simple process. I think it was two steps. It was, you'd sign up, you'd pick a username, and then we'd say, back up this kind of like passphrase, and then you were good. Like you, you were ready to go, no email required, nothing. And I think that the initial feedback from people at least stated preference was, wow, this is, this is an amazing onboarding. But the reveal preferences, a lot of people churned. So what we actually ended up doing over time is we added a bunch of steps. And part of this is because the app is currently invite only, and, and you can relatively get an invite pretty easily. You, you, know, you DM me on Twitter or someone refers you, and, and most of the time I'm sending you an invite if you're not a spam bot, basically. That's what happens. But the interesting thing is when you have an invite-only app, there's high intent for people to want to sign up. So you can actually add more friction to the onboarding process, which again, kind of goes against this Web2 conventional wisdom. But what you get out of that is if you can get people to finish a longer onboarding, you end up having the initial first experience be way higher, both for the user signing up, but more importantly, other people in the network. And I think one, one thing it's worth thinking about from first principles is, so Facebook is kind of considered the, like they were so good at their onboarding and you know, shaving off every single click, tap, like it, it really worked for a network, especially a network that you had to find other people you know. And they had all these like magic tricks that they could do because of the contact importers and all that other kind of stuff. But for something like Twitter, it's a, it's a public network, right? And you're actually trying to find people that you might find interesting. And so given that we're focused on Web3 and crypto natives today, we've taken this approach where you fill out all of this information. So your profile looks pretty good. We give you this big button when you start. It's, hey, here, here are 50 people that, you know, we do it a little bit algorithmically, but it's also some curation right now that we think represent the best of what Farcaster is. And part of it is I, I use the network a lot, so I, I have a general sense of what those accounts are, and it changes. But that experience is great for the initial user because they sign up and they, they kind of already feel like, wow, I'm ready to go. But then the other thing that they get is they get a bunch of people to follow them, right? Because if, if you sign up and you just have a username, no profile photo, no bio, someone might not want to sign up for that. Whereas if you've taken the time to kind of fill everything out and then we just have a most recent signup list because we're not growing that fast, you tactically, you end up getting, you know, 20, 30 people to, to follow you within the first hour, which I think on most networks, you don't really have many new people following you unless you really have a big audience. And if people who do follow you, they tend to be like almost like automated accounts or something. And it's like, you don't trust that. 
And so I think it actually has this really nice experience that creates the, the social like connective tissue pretty fast for people, which helps with retention. The Web3 component, though, that I think is different is we actually don't allow you to bring your own wallet, which I think people have told me that that's crazy. You don't understand crypto, despite having been in crypto since 2014, that we basically have made a decision that when you sign up for Farcaster, we don't want to require you to have a wallet. We want you to generate a new wallet that the application that you're using, whether it's on desktop or mobile, now has full access to the private key. And if, you, if you've ever used a kind of Web3 app and you want to actually do multiple actions from your kind of core Ethereum wallet, you have this really clunky flow where you keep getting kicked out to third-party application, right? It's like, imagine using Twitter and you like a post and then you get kicked out to MetaMask and you have to like actually click. And it's really technical because what you're actually signing is this like weird JSON blob, which doesn't make any sense to a normal user. Whereas by taking the pain of saying, nope, we don't even allow you to import a wallet, you have to get a new wallet, back this up, which people lose that. And so we've had to think through some improvements on the UX for that. Once you're in, everything can just magically happen for you. And, and then it, it's really focused on our opinion on how the user experience should work. So we've kind of broken out of the mental prison of saying, oh, well, everyone should just you know, use this existing wallet. And part of it is we can do that because we don't have to do stuff on chain. Right? So if you're playing around with money, you can't do it in a kind of like new wallet because you can't just like add money to that person's account. It's, it's like playing poker with fake money. It's like the consumer psychology completely changes. But based on the Farcaster architecture where we only really do one thing on chain and what we care about is actually that public and private key in the background, we're actually able to do this, deal with the pain up front, you know, front load as much of that pain. And then once you're in, it's, it's like all you can eat. And I think that was an informed experience also by Coinbase, where Coinbase started out with really simple onboarding. And what you ended up having is a lot of these customers thought they had a Coinbase account. And then when they wanted to go buy Bitcoin or ETH, they would get hit with this KYC, know your customer, like, you know, show your passport and all this, which is this really user hostile action. And people would get mad at us. They'd be like, wait a second, I, I wanted to buy Bitcoin and now I have to go through this flow. Whereas we shifted at some point, I think it was like 2017, 2018, where we just did everything up front. And then once you were in, you never got hit for another request for the most part. And, and I, that's a vastly better user experience. And so to, to, to kind of summarize, I think onboarding, a lot of people kind of cargo cult some of the web two, like make it as simple as possible. You want to go as viral as possible, contact importer, all that kind of stuff. Whereas considering the shape of the network and, and actually what your specific go-to-market should actually be much more informative for how you want to do onboarding. Yeah, I would add also that there's like a bot that re, like recasts, which is basically like retweeting the posts by new users for like a week or something like that. So you get some exposure, even though like you might have 10 followers, you might get exposure to hundreds of followers. So if you post good content, you can get many followers quickly. Which is cool because the new caster bot is actually built by someone in the community. So it was a permissionless oh. idea. <laughs> And when the network was smaller, basically, I would go to the recent tab most days. I would click through to see if people had you know, done a post, then I would reply. I just My standard one is GM and welcome. And it's like kind of like someone showing up to your house and you're greeting them, right? And when Katsuya launched Newcaster Bot, I was like, oh, wow, we should have built this ourselves. But what's so neat, and going back to the whole point of Farcaster, is it's at a place where the developer, if they have an interesting idea, it's not post on Farcaster and convince the devs to do something. It's 
you just do it yourself. And he didn't even have to ask me for permission to build this this bot. It just kind of was able to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly popular, right? And you actually get a lot of new users who who follow it as a way to sample, oh, are, are these new people coming in? How's their content? Without necessarily even having to follow them. It kind of, something that we didn't come up with on our own and ended up being a really good feature. The interesting thing that you said about adding friction is that on the like higher level, you go against the common wisdom that if you are a VC-funded startup, you need to grow fast. Because, you know, if you add friction and people need to DM you on Twitter, like, you know, <laughs> someone on Forecaster calculated that if you get like, 50 people onboarded every day. So you'll get to million in like 20 years or something like that. So this is very counterintuitive to go for slow growth. So I'm wondering, like, why have you made this choice? I think part of it's informed by just seeing how some of the social products of the last few years have played out. And I think to step back again, like look at a little bit of history as well as just first principles, where are we in 2022? So with history, what's the most successful social network? Facebook? Facebook was invite only for two plus years, right? You had to have, at first it was based on the school you were at, and then eventually it was a .edu email address. But for to think of Facebook, the most successful network as actually being gated, and for the time that it was, the way it was described is the college social network, and it was so much smaller in comparison to MySpace, which was the general purpose social network. I think people underappreciate that in terms of why did Facebook end up winning? And I think if you build an engaged user base that is high quality. And here it's it's a rough proxy, right? Like college students being high quality versus just general any sign up. That becomes a high status thing where people then actually want to join that network. And I think the other thing is if you build a product, especially in crypto, and you can kind of see this even with Twitter, there are a lot of bot accounts and, and kind of people just, if they can programmatically create something, they're just going to do a bunch of it because it potentially is useful for them for whatever nefarious purpose they want to do that for. And I think you run into an issue, and I'm still trying to formulate this, but it's kind of this concept of you have a total number of daily active users on any social product, and especially a public one where you can kind of see the other profiles. It's like one thing, I don't know if you know about Be Real or some of these other networks where it's a little tighter, where you you might have a group of 10 friends and then it's fine. You can almost think of it as like a a messaging app is actually very similar to this in that if, if you have a few conversations, you'll actually be a daily active user regardless of whether they're you know, a thousand people using that app or a hundred million people using that app. But if you think about the kind of ghost town problem of if the daily active users to the total number of signups feels like, hey, I'm one of the thousand people who's using this app every day, but there are a hundred thousand people who signed up, just doesn't feel cool. It feels like those 99,000 people figured out like this isn't, isn't useful anymore. And so I think that from that standpoint, what we're actually trying to build is this kind of ratio of daily active users to total number of signups. And if we, for whatever period, add a number of new signups that churn, especially on the kind of like one month or three month mark, which is, I think, a lot farther out, you know you have a a terminal product, right? Like if you Mm -hmm. can't retain people over the long term at a consistent rate, you're just, it's just the time function of, yeah, you can add a whole bunch of people go viral, you know, get really high vanity metric numbers of total number of signups. But if over time you're just leaking those users out because fundamentally there are problems in either the product or the quality of the network and all that, then basically you're you're dead. And so I think Varun and I don't want to just have a social network that we can say, oh, look, we got up to a million or 10 million people to sign up. And then it kind of fizzles out. I'd rather be small for a while 
and be building a product that people actually want to use every day. And that's another thing. I think a lot of people love talking about signups, which is a cumulative metric. Very few people like talking about DAU because daily active users and, and DAU is really hard because to be a daily active user, if you're kind of taking that as an average, that's like a vote of confidence every single day that the app is providing you some amount of value. Whereas you can trick someone to open up an app, I don't know, once a month with a push notification or an email or something like that. And, and so by just kind of working on the hard thing, it forces our, our focus, whether it's in the product or the protocol, to actually be delivering something of value to users. And if it's not happening, then that's on us to, to figure it out. And so I think where we want to be is consistent growth. So 5% weekly growth is our target, which actually relatively straightforward to do right now. But if you know about compounding, 5% weekly over the course of two or three years starts to get much harder. And I think that that philosophy also allows us, uh, especially given our team is small, to grow into any bit of growth, right? So if, if now all of a sudden the network feels lower quality for whatever reason, or, or we're running into some, I don't know, harassment issues or whatever the issue might be, we have the breathing room to actually solve that from a product and then potentially even at a protocol level. Whereas if you're just on kind of this runaway exponential growth train, it's like this compounding problem that only gets worse. And in some ways, I actually saw this at Coinbase, right, where we had done a lot of work from 2014 to 2016 to build systems that for the previous kind of boom, which was in the 2013-2014 era, and then you had this exponential growth that happened in 2017. And just everything, every time we thought we had fixed the system, it would, it would like grow again to a new peak. And it was just this really challenging situation where you had these terrible customer experiences because it's very, very difficult to build as a team in an exponential way. Like it, people tend to build more, I think, linearly. And so what you ended up having is like in the 2018, 2019 era, Coinbase did a whole bunch of scaling. And then in 2021, like it just broke again because you, you hit new heights. And so I think some of that is informed the way we think about it is like, can we work on building this really high quality engaged user base consistently growing, but also make sure that the product and protocol is kind of growing reasonably alongside it. And I think it'll only get harder. But for now, especially given the team is small, I think it's a great strategy for us. I think at this point, it works. Like you have this really magical moment there. Like, for example, you know, Chris Dixon, who is not that active on Twitter because, you know, he, he has like a pretty official Twitter account. There, like, you can see him just, like, hanging out and commenting some people who have, like, 20 followers sometimes. <laughs> what, what does he think? And you have these stories where, you know, you just, you have NFT feed on, on Farcaster and you can just accidentally discover some cool NFTs because you see that your friends minted something. You can also, you know, have better engagement than on Twitter, like this JMJ, like, he had this post where, you know, having, I don't know, like... He has like 10K followers on Twitter or even more. And he gets like five comments maybe. And he posts something on a forecaster where he has like 200 followers and he get, he get like 50 comments or something like that. So this is really powerful. And this network density, like you can really, you can really feel it in the air somehow. But there's also like a very interesting choice that you made. And I'd like to ask you about it because there's no quote tweet which is a perfect engagement farming mechanism for Twitter. Like product manager who invented this, I he, I guess he has a act as big as Jeff Bezos right now. But like, you know, obviously it's not good for the quality of interactions. It's great for likes. It's great for sharing 
this consent, but I'm not sure it's very good for the vibes on the app. So I'm wondering, like, what was your rationale behind it? And, you know, do you plan to implement it at some point or what's your take? Let me address a couple of things. So first, I think on the, to just be intellectually honest. So Chris, investor in our company, Merkle Manufacturing, which is building Farcaster. So part of that is he's using the product because he's an investor. Yeah. That, that said, I think if you were to talk to Chris or someone with a similar sized audience on Twitter, I think that there are a bunch of things that happen on Twitter today that make it kind of unusable, especially for a person with a big audience in crypto. So one, you have all these spam bots, right? So you, you're Vitalik or CZ or Elon or any of these people and that you post something and it's just this infinite number of just like people giving away crypto that they're scams with like Elon or Vitalik. It, it just is a really bad experience. And I think that you know, if you have a huge audience, it's like, do you really want to put something out and then just right next to your profound insight is just like a bunch of spam. I actually think if Elon buys Twitter, he'll he'll solve that. So, you know, that's maybe just a momentary thing. But I think this is a separate thing of, and this goes back to what I described Farcaster is today. It's it's a community of, of people who are curious about crypto and Web3. We put an emphasis early on of trying to find people who are kind of developers, entrepreneurs, people building things. I'd say on average, the community is more optimistic and earnest. And to your point about quote tweets, which I actually think ties nicely, one thing that we're making a conscious decision on, at least in our client, which is the kind of initial client for Farcaster, but, but has an influence on how the network is growing, right? We're onboarding people into the network and, and the conversations. The issue with a quote tweet, which by the way, was not invented by Twitter. It was invented by users in third-party clients. They used to put QT and like a good company, they saw this and, and then actually implemented it in a way that is a, a well-executed feature with some potential, maybe intended consequences, but I would call unintended consequences. It's basically quote tweets, uh, when used correctly, like are, are actually really useful because it kind of adds some additional commentary, but can also rebroadcast to the audience. Whereas when used in what I would say incorrectly or, or kind of like maliciously, they're basically just used for dunks. Right. And, and the simple example I always say is I'm having a conversation with you at a party in kind of like a semi-public. Someone can come over and listen. And it would be the equivalent of me walking up or someone else walking up to that conversation and saying, hey, everyone, look at this idiot over here, what he's saying. And I'm going to take this one thing out of context and, and nothing like and, and just broadcast it with commentary to my team, which gets farming and likes and all that kind of stuff. So I actually think it's a relatively, especially if you have a big audience and maybe you have more polarizing opinions or, or just unconventional opinions, it's naturally going to attract haters. And so I think with, with Farcaster, what we've made the explicit decision is what we want to actually encourage are conversations. And so you can actually accomplish the same thing as a quote tweet today. So the way to do it, maybe it's not intuitive, but if you recast our version of a retweet, the original, and then you reply, Anyone who's following you will see that and then your reply. So you, you're still getting the like kind of post and the context, but it comes in a different way of you actually now as a user, if you click through it, you're going to see all the rest of the context. So I think that like one example, the reality is it's a little like trying to kind of keep your finger in a dam as it's starting to break is like people actually want quote tweets and threads is another good example. Very popular on Twitter. We tend to kind of I don't know, discourage in terms of even in the UI, not making it easy to add threads because I personally don't like threads. We could talk about it. I, I prefer something like a screenshot essay or a blog post. But the idea that we have, for at least for our client, is if users are trying to still do something, 
can we actually rethink the feature in a way that optimizes for the behavior that we want on the network? And in our case, we are really trying to uh, create engaging conversations where people, I think of a successful interaction on Farcaster is Alice posts, Bob responds, Alice responds. And that to me is a sign of, right? Because if, if Alice posts and a bot responds, Alice is not going to respond to that. Or Alice posts and Charlie responds, but Charlie is like saying, you know, F you, Alice won't respond to that. But but anything that you're basically getting A, B, A, and potentially even deeper is a sign of like, there's something happening. Even if, if B is disagreeing with A, it's, it's mm-hmm. more civil, right? And, and you know, obviously mm-hmm. you can get in a fight, but I, I think that's like what we want to nudge it towards rather than I think some of the, what I would call mature Twitter dynamics of 2022, where it's really about find something that's on team A and broadcast it to your team in a way with commentary to, to show how witty and cynical and smart you are. And here's the thing. As Farcaster grows, people are going to build other clients. And if that is actually what people want, this like dunk fest of, of kind of broadcast, you know, the hot takes to your team, that client will outcompete. Like it'll, it'll beat our client. People will actually use it. That will be the revealed preference. But I suspect that if you actually have this opinionated point of view and you say, this is the behavior that we want to reward on the network, like anything that's actually going to get any type of algorithmic distribution on our client is going to be biased towards that. I suspect you will have a different vibe on the network in the same way that I don't think Twitter and LinkedIn are the exact same thing or Facebook and LinkedIn or you know Instagram and Twitter. They, they have different norms. And I think that is a thing I, I'm thinking a lot about. And it's like, how can you actually, in the product choices, as well as the protocol choices, instill a set of norms that make Farcaster different than Twitter? And you know, hopefully a year from now when I say, well, what is Farcaster? It feels more like its own thing versus saying it's like Twitter, but for people who are interested in Web3 and crypto. Just a short break to remind you that if you like this podcast, please don't hesitate to subscribe and give it a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I think also, you know, you lead with example, like you are the most active community manager I've seen in a long time because you're super active on Farcaster and trying to, you know, just spread good vibes and, and good standards. And let's get to the developer point of view for a second, because you mentioned clients and people might be obviously aware of clients when it comes to email, like you can have like Gmail or like Superhuman or like Yahoo Mail or whatever, but it's counterintuitive when it comes to social networks because they are closed, basically. So what kind of clients could you have? Like, what would be the difference between experience between client A and client B? Like, what could you change between these options? So I think in clients in three different ways. So the first is what actually is being built on Farcaster today. And they're, they're somewhat primitive. I'm excited for all of them. But most of them are kind of a, they index all of the data on Farcaster, and then they present a view, right? So it might be search engine, searchcaster. Instacaster is take all of the posts that have an image and, and kind of display it in a way that looks like Instagram. Another good example is there's one called Anycaster where you can type in any username. And because the data is publicly available, you can generate the feed. So you can see the world through someone else's eyes, right? Like a feature I've kind of always, I think Twitter had it for a hot second and then got rid of it for whatever reason. But all of this is just any developer who has any idea, they, they can kind of go do because the data is all accessible. One of the limitations of the initial version of Farcaster, we call it Farcaster V1, which we're on still today, 
is it's very difficult to build a client that does read and write, all right? So write being that I can actually use the client to post information back into the Farcaster protocol, which will show up in any other clients, right? The analogy here being like, imagine if you had an email client where you couldn't respond to people, but all you could do is read the emails that you got, right? So not as useful. So we've spent a lot of work over the last six months trying to get Farcaster the protocol, the underlying thing that kind of makes everything work, to a place where read-write is easy enough for a motivated developer to go build. And so I, I suspect once we're kind of done with this migration, hopefully by the end of the year, we are going to start to see the first competing clients to the one we built, our company, Merkle Manufacturing. You'll actually have it kind of, so the analogy here, it'd be like Gmail versus Hotmail, or another good example of this in browsers, right? It's like Chrome versus Safari. It's like you, you're using a piece of software that kind of does basically the same thing as what the other one does, but with some you know, aesthetic differences and then maybe some kind of like features here or there. The third class of clients, and the one I'm like most excited about in the long term, is people starting to depart from like kind of just the like functionality that already exists today and then fundamentally come up with new social primitives and new types of functionality. So an example from Web2 is Snapchat created this concept of stories, which then Instagram copied very well and, and kind of, you know, you think of stories now as very much a, an Instagram phenomenon. But that's the kind of stuff where that type of new social primitive enables a new type of social behavior online. And that, I think, is the key to actually having Farcaster succeed in the long run is that if the if it becomes the exp- the place where people experiment with new social primitives, then I think it, it has a shot at winning as a protocol because the marginal developer who like wants to build a new social experience is going to be hacking on top of the Farcaster protocol, not on phone books or whatever Web2 things. So a good example that I'm excited about, with Farcaster, you have a strong guarantee that every user is represented by a public and private key, happens to be an Ethereum address. And that's important because you get all these really nice properties of, of public and private keys. They, they kind of are, to use the term composable, which people refer to stuff in DeFi, but I actually think from a cryptography standpoint, you, you can do a lot with them and, and kind of layering. And, and zero-knowledge proofs are this kind of area of academic research that is kind of being implemented in, in the first ways, in a lot of ways, in, in cryptocurrency. But I think that by having a, an expanding social graph of active users who are represented by public and private keys, developers can permissionally start to build experiences that leverage zero-knowledge proofs to do new types of speech. And the example I like to give is the U.S. Constitution was ratified partially because of a group of three of the kind of founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, had a pseudonym called Publius in a New York newspaper where they wrote a series of, you know, dozens of essays about why the Constitution was important and should be approved, specifically to try to convince the people of New York to ratify it. And so you could imagine that type of primitive now existing in a way that no company or individual could actually ever prove someone said one thing, but you could say, okay, these three top-tier, I don't know, scientists, celebrities, venture capitalists, developers, pick a group of people, politicians can actually all post to a group account, but none of the other people actually know who that person would be. And I think if you start to get into that realm of like just primitives that now exist where developers can permissionlessly experiment, you you may find yourself in a, in a situation where you're going to have a bunch of new forms of speech that are uniquely enabled by, by the set of primitives on the network. And so that's what I'm most excited about with clients is moving from 
kind of read the data, which is still important and useful, right? To kind of like have competing functionality mm -hmm. to fundamentally new functionality, that's where we need to get mm -hmm. to. But I think if you just kind of think about it, like if you don't even have any users, no one's even going to build the read-only experiences. We launched the beta last year. We didn't have a single third-party developer work on the protocol for almost six months, like in terms of just using the data, because it wasn't enough data. It was mostly me posting. You know, you go on Farcaster, it was, it was like 80% of the posts were for me. And I think, whereas in the last three months, we've had a whole bunch of people permissionlessly develop, even with only, you know, 3,000 people in the beta, because the amount of data is increasing at an exponential rate. It's actually going faster than the, the growth rate of the users. And as a result, like, even with a small group of people, because again, there's a focus a little bit on quality, people find it interesting to play around with this. There's no API key required. And, and so they've started building things. And so I think as the network grows in terms of total number of users, the content's going to grow even faster. And you're going to start to get the read-write clients because the addressable market will be big enough. And that cycle, I think, hopefully like creates a bit of a flywheel. An, an analogy I always like to use is the iPhone. So the iPhone started out, no third-party apps. Apple, for the first year, was the only app developer to build a native app. They actually built the YouTube and Google Maps. Like, you know, they got the data, obviously, from Google, but they were the developer. Then the App Store came out a year later, and the initial apps were a lot of early adopters, people who had owned the iPhone. It's kind of the flashlight app, some rudimentary games, like to-do lists, all that kind of stuff. And it took three or four years before you started to get the true native mobile things that we take for granted today. Instagram, I think, or, or WhatsApp being the, the best example of this, right? Like the original iPhone was still sending things via SMS. Whereas once you had a data connection, you could say, wait a second, I, I don't need to pay like beyond printer ink levels of expense to send data. You know, I, I can just do this basically for free and, and over like way faster and, and more reliable. And especially in the developing world where it was like SMS was insanely expensive. And it's like, if I used WhatsApp on Wi-Fi, it was free. But those didn't happen right away. It took some time to understand what new primitives were enabled. Benedict Evans uh, has a really good frame on this is what sensors the phone kind of uniquely started to enable actually drove a lot of some of these primitives. Like the fact that you were walking around with a device that had GPS, uh, like a high-end camera, like those things take time for developers to digest, as well as the iteration of the phone, right? Like the, the camera that started out on the iPhone versus wherever we are now, obviously is a big difference. I think, I think that that's how we think about it. So it's like clients are going to start on a pretty basic level today, but it's important because people are kind of figuring out like, what can you do? And then work their way over time to more more sophisticated things and, and fundamentally new experiences is where we want to get. What I love the most about it is that if you wanted to make a social app as a developer, you say, okay, Facebook is broken, Twitter is broken, let's make an app. You cannot just make a feature. You need to get these damned people there. And this is the hardest part. But what you do, you, you say to the developer, hey, here are the people, and you can build your social app using these people. Like, you can just use the social graph. If your app is good enough, they will use it. If it's not, they won't. But you don't need to spend like five years building the social graph, going around college campuses and asking people to sign up. So this is a, like, for me, it's a breakthrough because... I dreamt about social app when I was, you know, in college when Facebook went big and so, but like their network effects were so strong that like, unless you were, there were like, I don't know, like TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, like a few social apps from like thousands or maybe tens of thousands apps that people tried to build, 
basically like because of that, because you don't have an access to people as a developer. So this is really beautiful thing. I think that's a great insight in that developers who build protocols think that the brilliance and the, the technical specification and the, the, the protocol itself is the thing that will attract other developers to build on it. And might work for a, an L1 cryptocurrency blockchain. Maybe it works in DeFi. I, I think, you know, probably not actually as much, but maybe more in DeFi because you're actually volume-weighted, not, not user-weighted. But with social, the thing that people care about is addressable daily active users, not signups. It's like people who are actually using this every day that if they see a new app, they can tap in and, and use. And I think to go back to the phone analogy, what makes mobile development so powerful is when you buy an iPhone or Android, you are a daily active user, but you're a daily active user that literally has the device attached to your body most of the time with a buzz. And so it's just this like crazy primitive from a addressable number of users standpoint that it, it makes it so lucrative for, for developers to take shots on goal in terms of trying to build an app that people find useful to put on their home screen. And so I think that that is the, the thing that if you're trying to build a protocol that like fundamentally is rooted in how many active users are using it, the only thing that matters is actually presenting developers with a group of quality, engaged, active users. And that in of itself is the most important thing. There has to be some amount of technical, right? Like you can't have something that doesn't scale because then it's not usable, then the users will go away. But if you can assume for a base level of technical sophistication, all of the upside is driven on, on active users. And in my mind, users don't use protocols. They use apps. Apps use protocols. And so if you can't build a good enough app at the beginning that is high enough quality to get users, why would anyone else build that high quality thing on your protocol? I just think it's lazy thinking. Yeah, I totally agree. So like, let's say I'm a builder and I want to build something on a forecaster. So how does it work technically? Like, what do I need to know? How do I approach this kind of task? Worth delineating what's on-chain versus off-chain. And it's interesting, when I first started, I, I kind of de defined forecaster as this kind of crypto protocol. And, and I think it's actually kind of confusing for people because as soon as you do that, they think everything's going to be on-chain. When the reality is, what we're building is a social protocol, and it happens to have a blockchain component, which is on Ethereum. It's on testnet today. It'll be on mainnet next year. And the only thing that's on chain is the mapping of kind of, think of it as like the user identity, which is kind of some combination of an identity number and a username, which is optional, and an Ethereum address, which is a public key. And that is it. Like you can actually just keep that primitive on chain, and it becomes the source of truth for when we say, you know, who's DWR or who's Mac or who's Elon, you can actually all go to the, the blockchain and say, this hasn't been tampered with any individual or company outside of the individual who owns the private key for that Ethereum address. And what is useful about that, and, and actually, I get a lot of people who say, oh, well, you could do Farcaster without a blockchain. And what I push on is, here are the constraints. I think, I believe in universal namespaces. I actually think it's like a vastly superior user experience, right? Like, there's a reason... People put at blank on like, you know, you go on TV and it's like they tell you the Twitter handle. It's like it's like a very easy way for someone to find another individual superior to domains, superior to phone numbers. It's like very human readable, kind of like very it just like works. And so universal namespace that isn't controlled by any one company or individual. And I would actually argue that anything that's rooted in DNS is ultimately controlled by the U.S. government. 
And if you've ever seen this website has been seized, that is the U.S. government's ability through the Department of Commerce to actually just go right into DNS and, and like pull a domain and, and, and take something over. And I think that people don't appreciate that because most people don't run into that issue on a regular basis. And so, yeah, from a user experience standpoint, you don't care. But if you're actually trying to build this credibly neutral network that makes that really strong guarantee, those two strong guarantees that I mentioned, as users control who their audience, like that direct relationship, and the developers always have unintermediated access to the data and APIs, you need a system that just will, it doesn't listen to anyone, it just runs the code that has been written, and, and that, that is the core primitive that's on-chain. The second part of Farcaster, which is the vast majority of all the content and, and the average developer experience, is we call them Farcaster hubs. They're, they're still in development right now because we changed kind of the architecture from V1 to V2. But you can kind of think of it as like BitTorrent in terms of this like swarm where it just all the data gets kind of handled for you and an Ethereum node, which for a developer, if you think about an Ethereum node, it's, it's kind of have a standard set of APIs, JSON RPC APIs, that allow you to kind of like query different things like, okay, this address or, or you know, whatever. And those are the two kind of core parts of the network. Everything in the hub is off-chain. And the way the authentication works is that signature for any piece of content has to map to that public key that's on-chain. And that private key is, is the Ethereum private key. And in doing so, what you get as a nice property is you can't spoof content on the hub, right? There is no like, oh, I'm pretending to be Elon and I've tricked the hub because the hub respects by, by default the kind of like provenance of the namespace that exists on the chain. And so with, with those two elements, I think you get the best of both worlds. You get the, the sovereignty and the non-tamperability of the core primitive of the protocol with the user experience and speed and, and you don't have to pay gas and all this other kind of stuff of Web2. And there will be scaling challenges for sure with hubs. Like we already know kind of like where it breaks in the next few years if, if the network continues to grow. But all, all the more reason that we're trying to be slow on growth. So it's like, make sure all this stuff works and then also be worried about scaling and having some adversarial thinking around like, okay, where are the areas and pain points on hubs? Like, you know, who's going to try to, you know, what level of decentralization do you need? Probably on the order of about 100 full hubs running. Do you allow people to run their own hubs that kind of like running your own website? You can always have your content guaranteed. So I think that there's a bunch of stuff to still solve there. But I think in general, the developer experience for most people building an app on Farcaster is they just need a hub. So they can download that off GitHub, run it in their own infrastructure. I would imagine a company like Alchemy or Infura or Coinbase will just run Farcaster Hubs as a service. You can sign up, use that, right? Just like Ethereum nodes. And as a result of that, you have all the data on the network and it's it's queryable and you can kind of build and never have to worry about like, oh, what happens if my API key is revoked? And so that's the core aspect of the developer experience. We are in a weird state right now where because we have this V1 architecture, and actually, because of the Ethereum merge, we had to kind of move a little earlier. So we're in this like hybrid where it's like the data is, the core on-chain primitive is decentralized, but the data that exists in the beta so far is like not in a hub. And, and so hopefully in the next three, four weeks, that's done. Like you can spin up a hub, replicate the data, and, and you're good to go. Yeah, it sounds really approachable <laughs> when it comes to building. And I also know that you have like a Telegram group for builders that you, yeah. you know, you connect them, you answer the questions and so on. So that's an interesting one. So what I found is like a lot of communities is kind of default to Discord and they're like there's proliferation of channels. It's now you're in a UI that like I think is like very noisy in terms of all these other things going on. It's hard to manage. Like it's just like a, like a full-time job. and I think the other thing is 
open access to channels, it saves you time as the like core team. But the challenge is then you have all these other people show up. So other accounts that are not developers. So as the size of that group grows, you might be less likely. Like, you're like, oh man, there are 900 people in this channel. Do I really want to ask this basic question? Whereas our, our channel has grown a lot slower. So I think it, it encourages people to talk more. And then the other thing, and you know, I have plenty of friends who are VCs. When VCs show up, especially like kind of like VC analysts in a developer chat, then any developer who posts knows that they're going to get like kind of pinged by someone. Hey, look, saw, saw you were working on something on Farcaster. You want to have a call? And that's just like distracting. It's like, no, no, no. I, I'm actually here because I'm like trying to build something. And so we've tried it and it's actually worked pretty well. It's like, there's a single channel. If you're a developer, you ping me. I don't, the VCs on the network aren't pinging me because I'm going to be like, you're, are you a developer? Like, it doesn't <laughs> seem like it. And so I think it's, it's created like a very nice community of, you know, it's now about 200 people where I think people feel a lot more comfortable sharing and, and being a little chatty, which I think is actually useful because you can always mute the channel. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, what's your vision? Like, you know, two, three years for Farcaster, how it's going, going to look like if everything goes well? Yeah. So let's start with like, kind of like the next six months and then work our way up. I think the next six months, the goal is to get Farcaster V2 shipped. So that's soon. And then on mainnet. And I think getting Farcaster running on Ethereum mainnet and proving out some of these hypotheses. So one, it's going to cost some gas to register. And then if you want a username, which is optional, it'll be about $10 a year. And so that's a hypothesis we have. We, we feel pretty good about it, but let's see if the market actually agrees with us. So getting that to a place where we know that the protocol has its own revenue mechanism for funding protocol development, right? So when you buy a username, it's, it's actually you're renting a username from the smart contract, not from a company. And that money goes into a treasury for that smart contract. And you figure out how to do the protocol development, incentivizing hubs, all that other kind of stuff. That is a sustainable model for the protocol, which I think another thing that I think people don't appreciate because it gets a little muddled sometimes is Web3 crypto, if designed right, and you can actually find something people are willing to pay for, you can fundamentally change the way open source development is done because rather than kind of having to do the like Wikipedia beg for donations, like, hey, everyone uses this free resource, but like, please donate. It's just, no, if you're serious about Farcaster, you're going to probably want a Farcaster username and rather than paying that to a company, you just pay it to a smart contract in Ethereum. And I think that there are like really nice ways you can abstract that and you can like take a credit card over here and actually, you know, translate that into crypto and pay the smart contract over here, kind of like a domain registrar. But I think that's something that we want to prove out. I think the second thing on the protocol side is today we have one main client, our client, and I don't think that that qualifies for protocol yet in the sense that if, for example, we didn't want an individual user to use our client, let's say they're kind of really being a jerk and like we just say like, hey, this is actually hurting the vibe of the community. If we had to kick them off our client, theoretically, they're not kicked off the network because they have that core primitive. They can go build their own client, but practically they are. It's like, well, why am I going to go build their own client? So. I think the other main thing is we need to get to at least another client that has reasonable UX. And now you have what I think starts to get interesting is you have what I call exit with interoperability is that if I get kicked off this client, I can go to this client and maybe this client's open source. So it's actually, or like directly mm -hmm. connects to a hub. So you actually have no other person that you have to really deal with. Now you have a network where you A, have competition, but more importantly, you satisfy that like, hey, this has actually reached a level that the sufficient mm -hmm. decentralization, while theoretical, is actually now working in a kind mm -hmm. of like practical manner. Yeah, like apart from the funny name for the client, it should be called Outcaster. 
But, <laughs> you know, like the thing that I wanted to interrupt with is that, you know, whenever someone don't, doesn't like Twitter or Facebook, they say, yeah, build your own social app. And here, and obviously they don't because it's hard. But here you can just switch clients. If you don't like this client, you can switch the client, which is... Star in the future when that client exists, yeah, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. intellectual honesty is important. So I, I think that the other thing I would say is, so all through that, we want to continue to grow because I, I think if you you know, keep the network at 3,000 people or 10,000 people or whatever, like it's kind of a science experiment. And it's like, oh man, it's so great. Like, do you have access to Farcaster? Whereas if you really want this to be an internet scale protocol that is permissionless at some point, not invite only, and anyone in the world with a good idea or whatever wants to just be able to go use it, you need to actually force yourself to handle the problems as that happens. But I think going back to this kind of slower, deliberate growth, we want to grow on our own terms because we're a small team. And we have a lot of stuff that we're trying to do. I just gave you two big things that we need to go do. And so not being dictated by some ideology of, oh, well, because it's invite only right now, it's not decentralized. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. But I'm giving a vision on where we want to head. And we're putting a lot of work in on the protocol and thinking and trying to be transparent and communicate. And if you don't like that, you don't have to use it. Fine. But I think what, what's resonated with a group of people is, huh, seems pragmatic. And actually, the product is kind of fun today. And why not be along for this ride? And maybe at some point, like, I don't plan to do this, but let's just take a hypothetical. We don't make the right decision and you get upset. What's interesting is you could potentially just go fork the network and say, hey, get rid of those guys. Like, they actually aren't the right stewards. And whether that's, uh, I think an analogy is like Linux. But like, in some ways, you could even say like Ethereum, like a lot of those people were Bitcoiners, right? And so at a certain point, People just said, hey, I'm going to take some of these principles, right? They started proof of work and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, we're going to go apply this with a new set of parameters. And it's happened in history all the time. Religions being like a really, really good example of this, especially Christianity, if you just look at all the denominations. But the thing is, is you're free to do it. But I think that if we make the right set of choices and continue to communicate and be open and just say, hey, we're optimizing for the protocol and our actions actually prove it, I think that there are going to be a reasonable number of people in the world who understand the pragmatic trade-offs and realize that pragmatism is probably the way to actually get to scale. And the end goal of getting to scale that is sufficiently decentralized in a way that you kind of have a competing set of clients, exit with interoperability, all the things that we're hoping to get to, they buy into the vision. Yeah, that's a beautiful wrap up. Where people can learn about Farcaster, how can they get involved? Farcaster.xyz, there's the GitHub, that's read the protocol spec, understand how it works. It, think somewhat approachable for even a non-developer. So that's a good place. And then if you want an access, like uh, an invite to the network, if you just DM me on Twitter, so it's DWR, and you just say that you listen to the podcast, I'll send you an invite. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Thanks a lot, Dan. It was a pleasure. It was very, like, even though like I knew Forecaster, I'm user and I thought a lot about it, it was still very mind-bending to me. So thanks a lot for that. Thanks for having me. So this is almost the end. But if you like this episode and don't want to miss the next ones, feel free to subscribe. If you liked it a lot, I'd be personally grateful if you could give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use. Thanks to these ratings, more people can learn about Web Free Talks, and it's really important to me. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.